to Genesis 48. Uh, well, rather, I'll read a rather short portion, which is verses 15 to 22. And I'll focus really on uh, verses 15 and 16. So Genesis 48, uh, verses 15 through 22. Beginning to read with verse 15. This is uh, Genesis 48:15. Hear now the word of the Lord. And he blessed Joseph and said, God bore God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has led me all my life long to this day, uh, who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head, on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, so he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall be great. But truly... His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he sent Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you, given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took uh, from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and bow. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. The title of the message this morning is Trinity and Gospel. And in as I looked at this passage again, I thought there's a really signal couple verses here that in which the theology of the Old Testament breaks forth from the narrative of the Old Testament, of the narrative of Genesis. And I thought it would be well worthy for us to break from, we've been focusing on the family almost every week, some dimension of the family, but I thought it really would be worthwhile after having done that to focus for this week on a theological idea as it comes forth here in verses 15 and 16, uh, as as Jacob blesses his son Joseph and his two children, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, and uh, the, the blessing that I see, or the, the theological thing that comes forth so clearly to me, is the idea of the Trinity. And so I've entitled the message, Trinity and Gospel. Trinity and Gospel. Oh, why do I put those two words together? Well, because I see definitely uh, teaching here in, this, in these two verses, Old Testament teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity, which is not, I mean, sometimes there's even a debate about this idea. Is the Trinity, is the idea of the Trinity a biblical concept? And uh, the Orthodox say, of course it is. It's, it's of major importance. It's fundamental to our understanding of 
the Lord and who he is. But there's, there's that debate sometimes. And so I'm calling your attention here to uh, one of the passages which comes forth very clearly. And I, I like to make a comparison between this passage here and Genesis 1-1, which we'll look at hopefully in a little bit. And uh, passages like uh, John 1 and Ephesians 1, a great Trinitarian passages of the Bible. Uh, if I were to write on the blackboard behind me on one side the word Trinity, and then over here the definition of Trinity, like we have in the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Catechisms, um, you can see that the, the word and the definition are equivalents. The, the, there's the definition over here of Trinity, that the, the Trinity is composed of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, one God, but three persons, uh, forever um, uh, uh, working together according to their personhood to create, to accomplish the, the great goal that God has set before himself. And so we have that definition there. Uh, on there, And then uh, we have a word for uh, the finally the church history. In church history, the church uh, defined this uh, this idea by a, a word. By a, the, the word became a symbol for the concept. And so um, it's true that you do not find the word in the scriptures, but you find the concept, you find the definition all through it. And so in, in truth, I would rather have the definition than the word. Some people say, oh, if the word is not there, then we, we shouldn't use the word. But uh, the word is simply our effort to put a word put a name on this concept that we see embedded in the scriptures. And this passage today is one of those places where we see the Bible speaking about the Father and the Son and uh, even the Holy Spirit, although not so much by word, but by work in terms of the Holy Spirit here in this passage. So I want us to look at this passage and I want us to sort of feel the joy and be enervated or uh, encouraged by the fact that this concept uh, comes to us not from one of the twelve apostles or not from the apostle Paul, though it does there too. In the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us that that uh, that the church would go forward and that we need to use the the term Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in our baptismal formula and that sort of thing. So. The New Testament talks of it very clearly, very plainly. In the book of Ephesians, the whole first chapter of Ephesians is organized. It mentions first the Father, then the Son, the work of the Father, a few verses for that, the Son, a few verses for that, and then the work of the Holy Spirit, a few verses for that. And uh, so Paul, in the book of Ephesians, is showing how the whole work of redemption is grounded upon this, this idea of the Trinity, and how these persons work together. And they work together in such a lovely way. Sometimes it's hard to even separate between the work of the Father and the work of the Son. Or the work of the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the, 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 they flow together so so easily. I know when I first studied that passage in seminary, I thought, well, why didn't God make it more plainer? Why didn't he separate the work of the Father more from the work of the Son? The work of the Son from the work of the Spirit. And I had to... I had to uh, preach myself a little sermon. Dick, this is not your book, this is God's book. Now you try to figure out why why God has kind of mixed them up a little bit. Because at the time, we were working on trying to make a, a defense or an apology for the idea of the Trinity. We thought, well, that would be easier if it, if it was even more plain than it is. Now, it is it is very plain because the, the, the names are used. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the names are used in that Ephesians passage. 
But as I say, they are they are so combined. The, the work of the Father is related so well, so intimately with the work of the Son that sometimes you say, well, was that the, what, which one are they talking about here or there? But you know by the, the names that they give to each portion or each passage. But uh, that's the New Testament. And what we do when we come to this Old Testament passage, we see how, uh, how magnificent the short declaration is of Jacob as he blesses his, his son's children, Ephraim and Manasseh. So let's look at verse 15 somewhat exegetically and, and draw out a few things from that. First of all, we see that there are two main personages or two main uh, beings that are mentioned here. In verse 15, it starts out, God, uh, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walk. And then in verse 16, it mentions a second um, a second. Uh, a proper noun, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. So we see two, grammatically we see two subjects here, uh, God and the angel. And we see that even it's brought forth in the English translation, it doesn't say God before whom my fathers Abraham Isaac Locke um, has done something. It, it, it's it, it's uh, in, the English translation brings forth very well that it says something about God, but then before detailing or talking about what God has done, it goes right into the work or the, the mention of the angel. And then it puts these two on an equivalency level, and then it talks about what they've done or what, what has happened, what has been accomplished through them. So let's just read it that way. God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has led, fed me all my life long to this day. Now that's telling you, that's telling you something about God. And then it mentions, it says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the Lord. So these two, these two proper nouns, as it were, God and the angel, uh, are are mentioned or used as the nouns, and then the action is that they will be blessing uh, the lads. It, it details a bond with each of these. It details something of what they have, what the, what their role is. Uh, God the Father has uh, has uh, he has led uh, Jacob, even though he's fed Jacob all his life long to this day, and. Uh, uh, God has been linked to Abraham and Isaac. So that has to do with the definition, in this case, the definition of what God, uh, who God is. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God takes care of his people. But then, then the angel, it says, who has redeemed me from all evil. Uh, so the main work of the angel, the main activity of the angel has to do with redemption. Uh, the two, uh, the two are mentioned together as, in a sense, equal ultimates. We know from the Bible that, like from Ephesians one, that the Father has a certain work to do, the Son has a certain work to do, and the Spirit has a certain work to do. That work is one work. It's a work of redemption. But the work comes through or is manifested in three different, slightly different ways. The Father, Father God, has. Has uh, 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 an eternal, eternal uh, foreordination or decree to save a people from their sin. 
he has, a, he has decreed that the Son would be the agent of that salvation. And then the Son, his main work has to been to work out that redemption. So the Son came to earth. He was, a, he was truly a human. He lived a, a, a real human life. And then he died a real human life. He died a real human death. He worked while he was alive. He worked up real human righteousness. So the, 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 the son, if you're playing a game of football or something like that, the, the son is like the player that is sent into the game to, to, to do the game. Behind the son is the, is the owner of the team and the, 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 team, the, the, the man who uh, sets the whole thing uh, in, in action. The one who has the organizing plan for the action. Then he sends the son in to do his work. And then there's a third, the spirit, which is uh, often, usually mentioned, but sometimes his work is mentioned instead of uh, him by name, uh, both in the Genesis and in uh, Ephesians even, where it's more plain. But the Holy Spirit has a work to do too. The Holy Spirit, uh, the, the Holy Spirit takes the work of the Son, this incarnational work of Jesus Christ. He takes the work of the Son and he begins to apply it. Now the Son, because he had a human body, the Son in his humanity can only be one place at one time. But the Spirit is completely unrestrained. He has no body. He is completely unrestrained. He can work everywhere and anywhere simultaneously at one time because he is the divine spirit of the living God. And so this divine spirit takes the work of the Son and magnificently applies it. He's, he's worked in all of our lives. There might be some of us who were regenerated on the same day. We say, how could that be? Because I, I was here. I was in Pittsburgh, maybe, and somebody else was in California. Or Oregon, as it would be. And how can that be? Well, because the Holy Spirit is unrestrained by space and time, like the other persons of the Trinity. But uh, the Son, in, in his incarnation, he was restrained in time, or restricted in time, until his resurrection and ascension. Even now, he portrays himself as sitting at the right hand of God. Now, he does whatsoever he wills in his divine seat, but still... Uh, it's the Holy Spirit that has this um, uh, omnipresent, uh, unrestricted work that He does, and so here in this here in this place we see this work. We see that we see that Jacob. First of all, he mentions God, and he ties God to uh, Abraham and Isaac, and and this is before uh, Jacob himself is included in this triad of patriarchs. It will be soon. Joseph will speak of the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I've come to see, I've seen a lot of these concepts that I see in the Bible, they marinate with me over the years, and with others too. And the, the more they marinate, the more pregnant they become, the more I see in them. And I've even seen in the last year or two, I've seen more and more how this term, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has apologetical dimensions to it, which I'd never thought of before. I've never, I've never heard that, never heard of any of our great apologies uh, speaking of that, but I, I can see it very clear, clearly. Uh, one of the ways, for those of you that are interested in apologetics, one of the ways is that um, we, we say that, uh, uh, that the great proof for God is, 
is that with, without the God of the Bible, as he defines himself in the scriptures, that nothing else is possible that we see that we would like to have, like love or beauty, these kinds of things. So we say that that's a tremendous proof. If you can't have, if you can't have love or beauty or truth, if you can't have those things unless it's the God of the Bible who exists, then that's a pretty good proof that the God of the Bible exists because we, we cling to these other ideas. But uh, some people will say, well, you have people like Muhammad or um, Confucius or uh, uh, some Hindu god that uh, they say the same thing about them. Well, not exactly, but they, they say that they exist in and of themselves. And the, the, great, the great contradiction of that is, is that um, uh, this idea of the utter necessity of Jehovah God has, in Christianity, a historical context. What is that historical context? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we can say, yes, there are other gods. They've done this and they've said this and that. But only... Only with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do we have this continuity that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Where we have thousands and indeed millions of people who have agreed on these assumptions. So yes, today, you have the ACLU, and you have the, the uh, Library of Congress, and you have the... Uh, uh, the feminists and the abortionists and all these different people that, that, that agree today. But they've only been in existence for a few years. Christianity has this long pedigree going all the way back. And so there's a, there's a power to this sense of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God here, uh, God whom I will identify as God the Father, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who fed me all my life long to, to uh, long uh, fed me all my life long to this day, that God is this, the father uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is Jehovah God, who has revealed Himself in the Scriptures to be the God of creation. Nothing was made before He uttered His words, and He uttered His words. The Apostle, the Gospel of John tells us that when the Father uttered the word. Uh, to that the creation would come into existence, he worked through the Son, the eternal Son, the eternal Logos, the eternal Word. And so all things that came into existence came into existence through a pre-incarnate uh, uh, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten, John 17 says, of the Father. And so uh, Abraham then goes so easily, after speaking of the Father, he speaks so easily of the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now last week I told you that in Hebrew the word for angel is translated messenger. So if you want to say a messenger, angelos in Greek, if you, if you wanted to use the word for um, uh, a messenger, you'd use that word. But it just so happens that there are messengers and then there are messengers. There are messengers with a small M, there are messengers with a capital M. And in this case, it's uh, the angel, it's a special messenger, uh, and so in English it's translated, the angel who has redeemed me, and Jacob is speaking here past perfect, in other words, he's speaking of his own redemption. He's giving a testimony, if you will. So the patriarchs were really Christian. Some people say that the, the patriarchs, the Old Testament people, didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. 
Oh, crazy! How utterly crazy! The, Jacob speaks of the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now, he's, it's not just an ambiguous idea of redemption. He's redeemed Jacob from all, from all evil. Now, Jacob doesn't go into a great soliloquy about this, about what he means, but he, he says that he's been redeemed from all evil. Evil, this is the best, this is a complete uh, expression of complete justification by faith. That is, that Jacob acknowledges that he is completely free from sin in some sense. And we know that through the New Testament. We know that that, that comes to us as we believe, as we put our faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his ability to forgive sin, then that forgives us of sins and that righteousness in Christ is ours through faith in him. And we see here that Jacob can speak of that very honestly and forthrightly. The angel, even Jesus Christ, has redeemed me from all evil. And then after detailing the Father and the Son and their, their principal work, then he finally says, bless the, the land. So Matthew Poole, when he comments on this passage, he, he, he acknowledges the equal ultimacy of the two personages, and he says that in their work, they, they have a united work, that they, they are, their, their work is to bless the, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, bless them spiritually, that they might be named among the fathers, that they might have the same God as Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then to let them grow into a multitude. So we see, we see point one, we see the Trinitarian sense of this. Point two, we see Christ's uh, salvific action, the idea of complete redemption. And then when, when the passage says, that they let, it says, let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And it even speaks down below in verse verse 19 at the end, it speaks of a multitude of nations. And so it's speaking here of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that, that does these things. And so uh, we have this wonderful Trinitarian uh, proclamation here in Genesis 48. Now if you look at Genesis 1, <clears throat> you see how it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was in the form of the deep, the, the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, it's not until, uh, explicitly, it's not until John 1 that we have a, an extremely didactic, explicit uh, explanation of this, and uh, so that when the, when the Bible says that uh, God said, verse 3, let, let, the, let there be light, when God said, the Son was involved in that, the eternal Logos was involved in that. It's not until John 1 that we see we have a full explanation of how that was worked out, but we see it here in this passage, and then in verse 16 of Genesis 1, it says, when it comes to the creation of man, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. So, most Orthodox interpreters have said, Here's a clear, a clear detailing of how, the, how we are created in the image of the triune God. 
let us, God says, let us, that is, let Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, let us make man in our image. So we have these tremendous Trinitarian um, uh, passages in Genesis. I remember when I was teaching at Christ College, one of the students did a paper on the Trinitarian nature of Genesis 1. And uh, it's a good example of how teachers can learn something from their students. And, and uh, it just struck me how clear it was from the student's paper that the Trinity was manifest in chapter 1. And uh, <clears throat> if that student is listening over the, <laughs> the Internet today, he will know who he is uh, for having done that paper. But uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, we see here that... Um, that the Trinity is spoken of in uh, in Genesis 48. It's spoken of in I mean uh, yeah Genesis 48. It's spoken of in Genesis 1. Um, we see in John 1. Uh, it says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He that is the Word was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him. And is in the Logos, was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Um, it says in verse 14 then, uh, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of, is of, is of the only begotten of the Father. It mentions the term to be only begotten Son in verse 18 also. And so uh, this, this term only begotten is a key Trinitarian term that um, is used in the scriptures. And, um, and um, it's, uh, if you want to test out a translation, by you, you're in a bookstore and you're wondering whether you should buy a, a particular translation, one of the great <laughs> easy keys is just to turn to, to John, the Gospel of John. Uh, chapter 14 and chapter uh, 18. Turn to John, the Gospel of John. See how they translated that. If they use the term "only begotten Son," it means that they are a sincere Trinitarian. It's a sincere Trinitarian translation. If they use some other phrase, they get they they obscure that key, that key technical term. It's it's a, it's a signal that they are not a very serious translation of the Bible. And so these these ideas are very very important. Um, <clears throat> so um, I mentioned the point one, point two, point three. The the spirits, the eschatological sense of the spirit. That's a that's a fancy word, but I've come to just love it because it has to do with the outworking of God's plan in the world, the development of God's plan in the world, the end. That the, the gospel brings the world, and the the eschatology of the gospel is the the, the full de, the full development, the winning back of the world, the creation for the cause of Christ. And so we see that that is embedded here in this Trinitarian passage, way back in the uh, in the gospel. I mean, in the the book of Genesis uh, forty-eight. Now. Um, couple of summary ideas about this. Um, one is that, that there, there is a historical sense to the Trinity. In other words, it, comes, it manifests itself in passages like this. 
you can see the history behind this idea. The, the, the idea of the Trinity, the idea of the triune God, is manifested in the history of the development of the people of God. It comes out in passages like this. Uh, there's also a theological meaning of uh, this, which we, this is not a sermon on the theology of the sermon, so much as the, the fact of it and the importance of it, but uh, the theology of it comes out, you can take the Westminster Confession of Faith, the catechisms, you can take those, and you can see what the theological sense of this, the equality of the persons in terms of their deity, um, the, uh, the uh, order the economic order of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the superiority of the Father in, in, in what they, well, a special sense, an economic sense, they call it, of the Father, uh, the superiority of the Father and the Son to the whole, the Spirit. The Spirit does the work of the Father and the Son and goes out. So there's a, there's a historical sense to the Trinity. There's a theological sense to the Trinity. And I would, I would also say there's a philosophical sense to the Trinity. Much as I argue in lifestyle with the idea of the of the uh, creation week, that there's a there's a historical sense of the creation week, there's a theological sense of the creation week, and there's a philosophical sense of the creation week. Now, the philosophical sense here is that um, that this is really true. This is not just a theological. Sometimes when we talk about theology, we we'll say, "Well, he had that theology, so and so had another theology." It's just theology, you know. It's just sort of in that ether world or ambiguous world of theology. No, when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, it is absolutely true. It is the ground upon which everything else is constructed. That's why it's mentioned in the very first verse of the Bible, and again and again. Here, uh, here as we see it in Genesis 48. And um, we, we cannot let people relegate our theology to some marginal area of thought or world. These things are true. God speaks of himself as the living God. He's not just a theoretical God, a suppositional God. God is real. God is God. And without him, nothing that was made could be made. But in and through in him and of him and through him are all things, the Bible says, in an absolute true way. We're living a day where no where all truth has been uh, uh, minimized or it's had the guts taken out of it and so it's even become my truth and your truth such a feeble understanding of the idea of truth it's a minimization of reality but God is not that way God is true God is living God is God and all of us someday will come face to face with the living God no matter what our truth says and we will face him and we better have his truth we better abide his truth we better have his savior his son on our side or we will be nothing and we will be fit like thorns to be thrown into the fire to be consumed by his heat but if we turn to this God, and this was a, a point in Jacob's life where he was, he saw it as a transition. He said, I can see my death close at hand. And so he invoked these names, this God, over his son's and his grandson's life, that they might be blessed too. Might that invocation be upon all of us. Might none of us believe that we can walk another, a single step more in our lives 
without acknowledging this God as our God. Like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might be, that we might see that our patriarchal heads, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they were great men, that they were men of spiritual insight, that they lived by thee, that thou didst feed them and walk with them, thou wert their God, and they were thy people. We pray that we might be numbered among thy people today, O Lord, that we might have thee as our Lord and our Savior, our God and our Redeemer. In the name of Jesus the Christ we pray. Amen.